Okay, so welcome to the Regenerative Justice Podcast, which is something that is just starting to emerge today. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Okay, so welcome to the Regenerative Justice Podcast, which is something that is just starting to emerge today um, out of a long conversation, a long yarn that's been going on between myself, Claire Burgess, and my dear friend and research collaborator, um, Liz Downs. Hi, Liz. Did you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so we came together last um, in the last couple of years doing uh, climate action work in um, Tasmania, Luchuita. Luchuita being um, the country that we're working on and living in. Um, and coming together around, you know, mutual passions for, um, for, for bringing justice into the climate movement and um, coming from a mutual background in um, community work and international um, development spaces where uh, also from a background in my case of um, social and environmental activism with forests. So um, we, yes, um, we kind of just going to see how things go and experiment yeah. with um, recording and documenting a bit of our process, I guess. So our process is pretty, um, when it comes to how we're, I guess, approaching the research that we're doing and approaching our broader sort of values and principles around bringing justice into the climate movement, I think it's fairly fluid. Um, so there's that aspect and that involves yarning and catching up and chatting and um, talking about various different issues. And then there's the work we're doing with AidWatch, which is to um, write a series of chapters around um, ver- minerals that are being sought after for the clean energy transition. Um, and just delving into some of those implications and what that might mean for a just transition. And then I'm also doing a PhD. So there's that aspect um, as well that I will, you know, um, be evolving my research in collaboration with Liz and the work we're doing here at Site Co-Creation. So yeah, we're just experimenting with um, documenting and yarning with the hope that it might be interesting to folks about our process and what we learn along the way. Um, and something we kind of wanted to chat about today is Liz, Liz's work with the Rainforest Information Centre. So they've had um, a really exciting result in the courts in Ecuador. And um, yeah, I wanted to ask Liz a few questions about it and we can yarn about it and yeah, it's got to do with rights of nature, and um, yeah, we hope you're interested and hope you like like joining in. So yeah, um, tell me a little bit about the the judgment and how how it went down, and and why do you think it's significant? 
Okay, so yeah, a bit of a background. So um, I am a campaigner for the um, Rainforest Information Centre, which is an Australian um, grassroots environmental kind of group, networky kind of thing, um, an organisation really. But um, yeah, we, we're very small, very grassroots, but it was started about 40 years ago by an amazing um, man called John Seed, who... Um, was part of Australia's very first rainforest protection actions um, involving locking onto trees, <laughs> um, which was one. And so it led to the Franklin protests and uh, Franklin and the Daintree and all the other um, great environmental actions around Australia that through the 80s and 90s and uh, the last couple of decades as well. Anyway, uh, one of the projects that the RIC, as we call ourselves, has been um, involved in for many decades <laughs> Um, has been um, a reserve in Ecuador, which is um, officially the most biodiverse country in the world. Mm. Um, and it's a very, it's not only the most biodiverse country, it's a very interesting country on lots of different levels. So uh, this particular reserve called Los Cerdos um, is up in the Andes. It's got hundreds of endangered species, about 270 endangered species have been logged so far. Um, in studies, um, attracted lots of scientists. It's got communities living um, in the region who are basically rural communities. They are people who are um, largely descended from um, Inca and pre-Inca populations as well, so a very um, indigenous um, uh, land-based communities who grow incredible food because <laughs> it's the tropics. Um, and so Basically, um, what happened a couple of few years ago was that Ecuador um, uh, became un uh, a third of the country became under the concession to mining companies, oh. who are um, so yeah, it's, it's been quite horrific. So over well, nearly three million hectares um, under well, actually seven million hectares under concession overall, but. Um, 2 million hectares of those cover protected forests and... 2 million? I didn't know that. Yeah, That's 2 million huge. hectares. That's quite a lot of um, amazing you know, forest and indigenous lands as well. So you can sort of see where this campaign's got um, two fronts. It's got like environmental prong and it's got a justice prong. And this is what, what we're talking about today is how... Um, anyway, so the Los Cedros is... is um, went to court last year at the Ecuadorian High Court or the Constitutional Court for the rights of nature, which is another incredible thing that Ecuador is well known for around the world. It has um, enshrined rights for nature in its constitution mm -hmm. um, under four different articles which protect uh, biodiversity, give rights to um, uh, living systems and water systems, yeah. Um, and these rights afford certain obligations in le legislation to the state. However, <laughs> the state is so keen to have uh, mining in the country that it's basically tried to push aside these constitutional laws to get there, to force through um, this massive land sell to international mining companies. Um, anyway, it's a very long story, but where this relates to climate is that um, the mineral that is that most of the companies are after um, is copper, 
Yeah. What's yeah. poppy used for? Yes. So, so this is. I say as if I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is. Um, you, you'll start to realise that we don't work in a very linear way. So anyway, we're going to go all over, wander all over the place here. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, it's organic, and we're here at the regenerative hub. Yeah, so we're here we're... at the regenerative, and this is a regenerative topic, and so we're understanding that a lot of interlinked issues. Anyway. Um, this is basically now coming to the story of how my involvement in the Ecuador campaign and in saving this forest called Los Cedros from copper mining and in the Rights of Nature movement is also intersecting with Claire's research, which we'll tell you about in a moment, on, um, on how the renewable energy transition around the world is fueling a huge global land grab for what are known as critical minerals. Um, and these minerals include copper is one of is possibly the main one. It's uh, needed for everything. You know, for it's electric cars require copper. They require four times more copper than an average vehicle. Um, wind farms require an enormous amount of copper. Electrification generally and decarbonisation requires a huge amount of copper for. Um, for <laughs> for cables and wiring and, and you know and all the other things, so basically the copper price has gone up and up and up over the past couple of years, in, in, um, with with the various the COP twenty six and the Paris Agreement and Joe Biden and all the, all the other things that are going on with climate, which everyone thinks, yay, we're green, you know, the world is coming towards some kind of well, actually no, because this is also going to cause a massive problem. Um, it's going to cause a lot of injustice because these minerals have to be mined somewhere. Yeah. And these companies are not waiting until we discover the technology magically that's going to eliminate the need for mining. Like, oh, well, you know, maybe we'll, we can um, <laughs> recycle somehow. Well, no, it's not happening mm. because it's not economically viable for the companies. The bottom line is it's much more lucrative to mine the metals yeah. and sell the metals. So that's what they're doing in Ecuador, particularly is copper, but um, and so... you know, it's happening all over the world. From what I'm learning is that it's this issue's really been started to be raised first by um, the Latin American collective called Acción Ecologica. Acción Ecologica. Well, there's there's various collectives. Yeah. Ecuador's got a few amazing groups that are onto yeah. this. Um, there's also um, the well, you know, it's the post-extractivist movement, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. In Latin America, it's where you get, you know, extractivism, the word, comes from extractivismo in Spanish. Yeah. It's kind of a harsh word. We had a friend say to us recently, didn't we, that extractivism is kind of, oh, I don't like that word. It's kind of harsh. It's kind of ugly. Yeah. And but we were kind of like, well, it's an ugly thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's a bit like the idea of degrowth, right, which we will probably talk in this podcast, but mm. uh, people get a bit um, uh, reactive around that word, but, um, but that's sort of why you use that word because it elicits a reaction that gets you to think about what this process is and what it what it might mean for us you know if we're triggered by anything that isn't growth why is that mm -hmm. um why do we believe so strongly in this idea of growth or yeah or why do we feel concerned about the feeling of extractivism and without recognizing that it is something that happens every day in our lives actually we are a part of this system of extractivisms 
in their various forms and and down the track i think of this podcast we might explore the different types that have been talked about in scholarship and from activists but yeah from what i'm learning doing my phd and using extractivism as a lens is that it's very much a term that um, came from Latin America and from collaborations between indigenous folk, peasant um, base farming um, groups starting to talk about this with scholars and, and really started to think about what was going on in, in Latin America in terms of this intensive resource extraction that was a particular type of foreign companies coming in, extracting with really intensive practices that involved a lot of uh, destruction of the nature and um, uh, waste, and then exporting most of it out. So these countries becoming sort of beholden to this boom bust kind of nature of mining and not getting a lot of the benefits out of it and really feeling I think, well, I can't speak for their feelings or folks on the ground's feelings, but um, I imagine it, it's an experience of, of invasion almost, particularly when there's been a lack of consent around um, projects. So coming up to that, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this judgment that came out um, Yesterday, in Ecuador, yeah, yeah, yeah because well, part again, um, maybe just a little bit more context for this. So, um, you know, um, around um, 30% of the mining companies that are currently trying to explore for copper in Ecuador are Australian companies, yeah. Um, and one of those Australian companies that's impacting on um, the Los Cedros Reserve that we've been trying to protect, but also the surrounding areas and the, the front lines that we've been working with and the, the rural, the people, the farmers, the indigenous people of that area. Um, it, it's BHP, we've got um, a couple of other companies, Solgold, um, Gina, Gina Reinhardt's in there as well. With So, you know, well-known companies that are already... Um, you know, uh, very big in Australia and the world. Um, they are operating across the continent here, particularly in, um, obviously, in Indigenous lands, in First Nations lands, because in West Australia and South Australia are massive mining states. So when we started going into this and delving into the Ecuador situation and, and working on the campaign to try and support the front lines and on the fundraising, we quickly realised that, well, the first thing we had to do was find the link to Australia because we, we needed mm. to get some media here in Australia. We needed to get people interested. And one of the things was, well, it's like massive Australian mining company footprint and they're yeah. mining for copper, which um, is, a, is a renewable energy resource that the climate movement is really pushing, you know, and, and our Australian greens and all the rest of it. Anyway, so we started doing this campaign and, and it became really intense, um, you know, this particular forest court case that was won yesterday which completely blew our minds but it's basically saying that um, not just on behalf of the biodiversity so the rights of the biodiversity to exist persist and thrive of that area of all those species of um, you know different you know, big species like pumas jaguars um, uh, spider monkeys uh, and in spectacle bears, you know, mm -hmm. but also all the other different species. Yeah. So they have a right to exist and not mm -hmm. to be 
brushed aside for you know some greedy company to come in and get mine the copper yeah. <laughs> to sell to an electric car made dealers in China you know or, or you know not just China but it's, it's it is you know the geopolitics of it tends to really just squash out local environments it's a concept yeah. known as some um, sacrifice zones yes yeah so look, you know, we don't want the forest to become a sacrifice zone for that but also the communities around um the ecuadorian constitutional court ruled that um communities have the right to clean and safe water in a clean environment yeah and also that the companies have to do a different kind of consultation in future mm. to um in not uh, because you know, the problem is you allow companies to do consultation and they just want to get the communities to... But basically, it's blackmail. They want to blackmail the communities, coerce the communities into accepting, you know, mining, um, offering jobs that may or may not ever come about for, mm-hmm. for people, um, not giving any people any real consultation. Um, you know, yeah. If people aren't Indigenous, they, they're not, you know, they, they can't... Um, the free, free, prior and informed consent... Um, you know, guidelines only apply to Indigenous people, so if you're not yeah. classified as Indigenous but just uh, people trying to live on your land in a healthy yeah. way, then you can, then you, you don't even have that to... Mm-hmm. So it's... Um, yeah, so anyway, so that, that there's some legislation now that will make it harder for companies to, to be able to um, get away with having such yeah. limited consultation. Anyway, so... So can I ask a question just to clarify? So there were three... Uh, sections of the constitution yep. that your lawyers who were representing um, the, the forest and the communities, the forest and the communities um, so the three was it all of the various sections that they were challenging in the constitution saying that companies yep. weren't abiding by these yep. and well, companies um, have violated the rights within with regard to all three of those particular articles of the constitution right and so you had like extensive evidence what they were doing in terms yep. of and these included um australian mining companies and their yeah well in this case it's mainly a canadian mining company but okay. um we have australian mining companies in all the surrounding regions yep. so it will impact um ah yeah yeah so if uh let me sort of try and clarify this so if they get word that they can't behave like the canadian mining companies that might mean they mm-hmm. basically can't yeah and attempt to atim- intimidate people like they do in perhaps other countries yeah yep. um and it's, it's a bit of a tricky one because at the moment we i mean we have to be actually very careful about publicizing yeah. this win yeah <laughs> and i want to really say this is a disclaimer because um we it's going to rock the boat and um companies are just not going to be very happy and this might impact on communities mm-hmm. as well so um just so maybe just, we don't talk about so much the what the companies did wrong but more about um the significance of having these kinds of um what's the word that you call it? these are uh, sections in the constitution around rights to nature and human rights as in Australia um, we don't have any of those kinds of protections in the constitution and the constitution is the overarching sort of law that trumps every other law if you like so to get these kinds of um, incredible progressive um, legislative 
concept you know um ideas are into the constitution is pretty amazing and, and there's a, probably a um a whole podcast on that bon viveur movement and how it came to be that um rights of nature emerged but um yeah perhaps if you want to chat about that the where those kinds of um legislative frameworks came from like where did they come up with the idea of rights of nature and um is that that's a big question? Yeah, well, it's a big question, but I think um, you know, just tying it back into what we've been talking about, I really think that the important concept and the takeaway concept here is um, that these are legislations that have come out of indigenous worldviews of yeah. the Andes, um, and what that means is it's it's basically the, the part of what's known as mentioned it before the post-extractivism concept or post-extractivism movement where um, you know countries and peoples that have traditionally been um, oppressed by our very colonial industrial capitalist um, invasive yeah, Western European whatever you want to call it global north you know the culture that that is, is basically been causing <laughs> the um, massive climate and ecological crisis that we have climate a climate social and ecological crisis because yeah. So we, we, what one thing we really want to be very clear on is that um, it's interesting how the climate movement almost is, it's, it's the climate movement and the word yeah. climate's in there, but what happened to ecological and social? Yes. Because the crisis is three-pronged and the same thing has caused all, you know, our, our economic system, um, which is based in colonial extractivism, mm. um, it's a very old mindset it's a mindset that's so entrenched that most people don't know it if we're privileged yeah. we don't know that we're participating in that mindset most of yeah. the time it's, and it's really hard to say people that oh well actually you're, you're privileged and they go oh i'm privileged how <laughs> dare you say that I, I care about the environment and then you go yeah. ah the environment well that's another thing yeah <laughs> um you and know yeah that idea like what i think you're about to allude to the the environment being yeah. something separate from us and yep. this idea of separation and um and classifying and objectifying things that came out of like a pro probably hyper scientific enlightenment period um mm. that still remains in a lot of sciences um that requires this kind of separation of concepts and really sort of boxing them in without recognizing the relationality between things mm -hmm. and so I think you find that that's being replicated with climate movement by f fixating purely on climate um, and failing to recognize the interrelatedness means that you get this kind of reductionist carbon fixation um, around just reducing emissions in this kind of calculated like accounting kind of way um which i wouldn't say the climate movement you know in terms of the the like radical transformative aspects of the climate movement really intentionally did this and i think there's also been a role that's been played by energy experts and mm -hmm. various other white collar people who have been shaping mm -hmm. this whole narrative um have played a role in making it more kind of capitalist and colonialist in a way mm -hmm. um 
but there is something there about separating issues and fixating on them that seems to replicate the problem that caused the thing in the first place. If that yeah. makes any sense. Yep, it's exactly. And and so you know, as now well, when we're looking at alternatives to that, what we're seeing and what I mean, what so excited me when I was in Latin America, when I've been in Ecuador, and really just going, actually, there's this whole alternative movement. Now, of course, we also have, <laughs> you know, I mean, in Australia, I'll, I'll get onto this in a minute because I'll. I'll you know, get on to how it applies to so-called Australia here but you know one thing that's really you know this this dialogue that's come into academia that's come into even up into the political and um, legal systems of countries like Ecuador um, is that is, is coming from a different place it's coming from a place that nature is not just here to be exploited by humans it's not just here to provide resources it has its own rights nature is a living organic being um you know a, a multi-dimensional being it's it's a, a being with which we are totally interrelated and embedded um some of the um, big, biggest informants of the deep ecology movement have also come out of latin america um, really? biocentrism biocentrism or biocentrism yeah. or you know all of these these ways of saying that we are we are the forest depending it's depending mm. him or him, you know we're not <laughs> themselves we're not um, defending the forest and also we're not the forest isn't here to provide wood for us the forest yeah. isn't here to you know provide carbon credits for us even it's a whole lot of different dialogues and so what we're trying to say is you know coming out of Ecuador with you know something like you know nature being defended legally in a court of law yeah um, it's saying you know it's saying to the climate movement who is basically if you know if you look at most well-meaning people here and you told them well, you know, yeah, uh, you know, we, we've had conversations, and they've run something like this. Well, yeah, I mean, we need to, yes, decarbonisation is important for bringing the global, you know, temperature down. But um, the mining is going to be happening in the Congo, and it's going to be happening in Ecuador, which are the most, you know, incredibly politically conflicted spots where there's been there's histories of slavery, slavery and child labour in mining where mining is going to wipe out species directly. Yeah. It's not just going to be a side effect of the mining. The mining yeah. in Ecuador has already wiped out species. Yeah. And we're in a sixth mass extinction. So what we're trying to say to people is we need to bring the ecological back into the equation and we need Absolutely. to bring the social back into the equation and make it a three-pronged yeah. effort movement, not just a carbon reduction movement, yeah. because then you're just going to be going, you know... We're not going to be stopping the, the destructive no. force. We're just going to be... It's already... You know, our research is already showing that it's... It's destructive. And yeah. the, thing, the thing is, I think... Um, and I think we'll do a series of different, like, specific topics and look, mm. go a bit deep in, deeper into those entanglements But because there's a lot to take in, I think, with this. But um, what I wanted to mention is... I lost my train of thought there. We can edit that. Um, yeah, the idea that um, the current market that we have, the current global market system will, on its own, um, decarbonize through regenerative culture um, doesn't have a lot of... Uh, regener regener I'll say that again. I can edit that. Okay, the idea that uh, decarbonisation can occur 
within the current sort of market-based global system that we're in is um, denying so many flaws existing within the capitalist system and the or the neoliberal system however you want to understand this like rampantly growing economic political you know storm we're sort of in i know i shouldn't use the word storm actually but um you know the last 30 years has been um the most emissions that have been released right since we've known or since um the companies have known about the climate crisis we've pumped out more emissions than any other period in history and so to to really have faith in this market and that it will transform is is it's um kind of i can say it's wish it's wishful thinking i want to say delusional but i think people really want to believe that things can get better through um these technologies but we have to remember these technologies were developed at the grassroots level and um, were meant for kind of community decentralized hubs of um, reducing consumption and, and, and planning around um, use of energy in a more kind of ecologically sound way and um, to use technologies to roll out in this with by the same actors as the fossil fuel companies right they're the ones you know joining the financing the um the so-called renewable energy companies and um they the money backing this is really dirty kind of exploitative colonial old money too um that's backing these companies in the rollout of this energy infrastructure to think that that will actually generate low carbon communities is pretty it, it, it's a it, it's it's a it's a myth i think and so it's not just we're not just sort of here to say um this is a concern for small communities that are you know that face the projects this is a concern for all of us this should concern us if we care about the climate if we care about ecology if we care about justice if we care about our future survival <laughs> you know <laughs> that this um this market rollout of renewables is um laced with misinformation and um so there's that as well and um I'm really relying on some really amazing scholars to be able to say that. So I want to shout out to um, Alexander Dunlap, who does a lot of work in this space and others in the political ecology space. And um, obviously the folks on the ground who witness and are in constant sort of struggles against this system. So yeah, sorry, that was my little interlude there around um, that but yeah back to your point um this sort of system is enabling the extraction of um more land and resources from the global south which is i think what what where i come from in terms of justice is what where i'm really um thriving for some change 
actually. And uh, I think we're going to wrap it up there. And so thanks for tuning in for our first episode. And um, yeah, thanks, Liz. I love these yarns that we've had previously. And it's going to be cool to document them and yeah, keep the brain and the embodied experience of yarning going into the future. Yay, yeah. No, thank you for, for listening. And yeah, we, we, we'll try and sort of, we'll, we'll let you know when our next, um, yeah, we're going to try and keep them to around 30 minutes because that's kind of like, you know, a nice chunk of time to listen when, you, <laughs> when you're doing other things. And um, yeah, and um, yeah, we'll try and we'll sort of unpack a lot of the stuff that we've just talked about today because we just basically... You know, wanted this to introduce. This is the first one, yeah. This is our inaugural um, Regen Hub. <laughs> yeah, you know, did we say we're chat. in the Regen Hub? Yeah, I think we did. I think we started, and I'm not sure if we acknowledged. We, yeah. we did it. Did we acknowledge Ooh, where we our place where we are at the beginning? I might quickly do a shout out to Regen, and then and then we should do yep. um, a welcome to Angola. acknowledgement of country. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. Shout out to the Regen Hub, to Therese Smith and Sarah Richardson for, you know, really pushing the Regen Hub and getting getting funding for a safe space for folks who, who like to collaborate and work um, around issues related to social and ecological justice, which um, is the third de- demand of Extinction Rebellion. And, um, yeah, so thanks. And we... We just before did a, a sort of ceremony. We we brought some plants to. We wanted to give this space um, a gift, um, and then um, we did a little sort of ceremony. And um, yeah, we wanted to acknowledge the ground that we we're on here. Um, yeah, this is the land of the. The Moanina people and the Palawa people, and yeah, we just want to acknowledge that there has been a long-standing struggle since colonization in in this country and. On this land here in particular um, there's been some pretty devastating atrocities that occurred in the name of these colonial extractive expansions and and I want to acknowledge those who passed as a result and their ancestors and I want to acknowledge those who are here today um, in in Lutruwita, um building and celebrating culture and continuation of culture here and also fighting for a treaty and other um yeah regenerative justice in a way is how i imagine the, that to be because so much of i guess my own values and learning has come from from indigenous knowledge systems and I'm really grateful for that and having learnt so much along the way about how to come into uh, a better relationality 
weird country and the land has um i i'm forever grateful to those folks and yeah thank you uh to those elders past and present who hold this space for us and um liz knows a little bit about um this site in particular do you want to mention any well that we acknowledge that we're on a we're on a site that uh, it's a significant site for the local aboriginal community um, and we just want to say that there is some healing that needs to happen here and it's um yeah it's happening with the community groups that are um connected here on this space and i really respect that work that's being done and my intention too is to honor and continue to 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 work in right relationship with um indigenous folks um and yeah <laughs> and the land and the land yeah <laughs> Okay, great. Well, um, we'll talk soon. <laughs> see you all. Oh, I won't see you. <laughs> okay, over and out.